I will just note that unlike on Capitol Hill, the senators and, in fact, members of both chamber can bring their Dunkin' Donuts iced coffee onto the floor <laughs> with him. There's no water and milk hard line here. <laughs> the hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. It's another Friday here on Beacon Hill when lunchtime comes around and we we make time for a little State House Takeout here <laughs> around the around the hour of our lunch breaks. We've got Katie Lynn and Matt Murphy here to chat about um, a, a pretty busy four day week here on Beacon Hill. Hi guys. Hey, Sam. It's been the type of week you don't really have time to run out and get lunch. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> um, and as so often happens, uh, we have the big topics we're all talking about here on Beacon Hill um, every day this week. And then there's the big topic everyone off Beacon Hill is, is chattering about. So this week, Beacon Hill has been talking about Governor Baker's annual policy speech, his budget proposal, what it portends for education funding, upcoming debate on the Senate's uh, package of climate change bills, whew, and much more. Uh, we'll get there. But first, a quick hit on most of uh, what America has been dialed in on. Um, Tuesday night during the governor's speech, Congressman Richie Neal was up here. You got to uh, uh, catch up with him, Matt. Um, he's one of the top-ranking Democrats in the U.S. House these days as Ways and Means chairman. Um, you got to talk to him about impeachment, Matt. And it's hard to think that any Republican votes will be shifted in the Senate trial, but what's, what's Neal's philosophy he was talking about, about pushing ahead with impeachment proceedings? Yeah, well, I mean, if you if you think about who Richie Neal is, he was uh, obviously, as you mentioned, chairman of Ways and Means. He has been active in some of the investigations into President Trump. He was uh, the one who subpoenaed uh, Trump's tax records, but only after uh, considerable pushing from his left. He has been in uh, Speaker Pelosi's inner circle as she thought about uh, pursuing impeachment and had been a voice of caution uh, in that group. Uh, but now with the trial starting in the Senate this week, uh, Neil said that he does not uh, foresee and he never did foresee uh, impeachment convincing any Senate Republicans uh, that they would vote to remove the president. But he thinks uh, basically that the discovery process is worth it, that the submission of documents, that the calling of witnesses and that the full airing of what went down with, uh, I guess we're calling the Ukraine affair now, but uh, with what happened with that whole situation involving the, the government aid and, and the president's phone calls and whatnot uh, deserves a full airing uh, before the Senate, even if uh, the odds of the president being removed from office are slim to none. Sure, he thinks uh, it's an important process to go through. Uh, quickly, the one other thing that you got to chat with him about was the possibility of an infrastructure bill uh, down in Washington. Yeah, we felt we had to just bring this up with yeah. him. It feels like Congressman Neal is just the eternal optimist when it comes to the idea of getting a, a federal national infrastructure bill done. He's He said he believes it can get done for a long time now. He's had a number of meetings with Treasury Secretary Mnuchin. Uh, he told us that uh, he met with uh, the secretary uh, after the passage of the USMCA, the Mexico-Canada-US trade deal uh, that the president uh, is uh, expected to sign. Uh, he has a follow-up meeting scheduled for next week, he said, uh, with Secretary Mnuchin to discuss this. And he thinks that it's still entirely possible uh, to get this done. 
in an election year uh, when the stakes are high. He uh, likes to say, and we've heard him say this before, that uh, it's something that the president needs and the Democrats want. Uh, so he sees no reason to uh, give up trying to get an infrastructure bill done. Now, I'm not sure that that's going to be possible. He says they need to agree first on a number, uh, and that uh, seems like a tall task. Now, some of the stuff we've been talking about here on Beacon Hill includes uh, work on those Cape Cod bridges. Would, would something like that be involved in this in uh, this infrastructure bill? I'm sure it would. Uh, Governor Baker has been down to D.C. several times to meet with Transportation, Trans, excuse me, Transportation Secretary Chow uh, to talk about the replacement of the Cape Cod Canal bridges. Uh, if you're talking about a billion dollars, uh, excuse me, a trillion dollars in infrastructure funding nationwide, I would assume that the state would be pushing for uh, some of that money. And given the positioning of some in our delegation, uh, I'm sure it would stand a good chance of getting into a bill like that if it ever came to fruition. Sure. And Katie, maybe a little bit more funding for your uh, Green Line extension up there in Somerville. Hey, the, the work's going on. I, there's certainly uh, more to do, so <laughs> whatever gets it there. Uh, certainly. Now, uh, Governor Baker gave his uh, sixth, I think, sixth annual policy speech uh, this week, if you count his inaugural speeches, uh, replete with the usual talk of bipartisanship. Um, you're counting, Matt. You're counting, Katie. Um, I think it's six. Two, Fifteen, two six, inaugurals and yeah. four state of. Yeah, yeah. So four. So, <laughs> so four state of the Commonwealth addresses uh, and two inaugurals. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah d- different label Sam's for the same sort of thing. Sam's lumping them all into one. I'm lumping them all together. Uh, the usual talk about acting better than the people in Washington during an election year and, and all that, all that stuff. But then uh, the biggest takeaway was his call for net zero emissions by 2050. We'll get to that in a minute. And he also touched on housing, health care, funding for MBTA. Um, prodding the legislature on each of those areas, right? Because he's got he's got bills filed in those areas that are still jammed up in the committee process, right, Katie? Yeah, I mean, he pretty much highlighted all his kind of main policy priorities in this speech, the same bills we've been hearing him promote um, in kind of smaller profile platforms, his, his housing choices bill, um, as he calls it, the local zoning approval threshold bill aimed at spurring housing production, his uh, his major health care bill, 179 pages, as he pointed out from the from the rostrum in the House floor, saying he wouldn't go through every single page. That's got a hearing next week. And of course, his um, his transportation bond bill is the, the third one. He had some some talk in there about traffic and congestion kind of foreshadowing the the next day's budget filing that would include a higher fee on a ride share talking about how companies like uber and lyft are contributing to congestion and clogging the roadways as he made that kind of same call for his bond bill to pass sure yeah and i'm glad you mentioned the hearing next week on his health care bill because um matt you mentioned uh, to me earlier this week that uh, this speech really sets the agenda for beacon hill and i was thinking to myself well I mean, the legislature could just get to July 31st and not act on any of this stuff that, that he wants to see happen. But they've got the hearing next week on the health care bill. They've got um, the possibility of an executive session and transportation committee to vote on his bond bill. Yeah, uh, in large ways, the state of the Commonwealth does kind of set the direction for the rest of the year. I mean, the legislature ultimately controls the agenda, uh, especially the speaker who has outsized 
power over over what's going to move forward. But I think you saw, including in this speech, the the 2050 net zero emission goal get put front and center by the governor. Uh, it's something that the, the Senate was preparing to roll out later in the week. The speaker jumped up immediately and said, yes, us too. We also support that. Uh, and, and so the governor really put that uh, on uh, people's radar where maybe it had not necessarily been a part of what uh, we were looking forward to in 2020 if uh, we had had this conversation two weeks ago. That was really fascinating how everyone kind of, you know, the, the so-called big three all coalesced around 2050 net zero really at the, at the same time. Um, you know, you have the Senate pursuing it in a bill, the governor mentioning it in the state of the state speech and the speaker that night saying, yeah, me too. Like, I also agree with this. Yeah. And it, it is kind of funny how every now and then on Beacon Hill, you have a an issue that isn't necessarily out of the mainstream, but isn't necessarily on everybody's radar as a top priority. And it can kind of catapult its way up to the top of the list in a in relatively short order. Yeah, that's one of the things that I know we've been talking about this week, and I've I've really been wondering about um, Katie and Matt. Like uh, something like this net zero by twenty fifty, was that orchestrated behind the scenes that they would all come out for it? Was this the case of one of them riding on the other's coattails and and just hopping on on, on the bandwagon? Um, how how did this come about and, and coalesce so quickly? It it is one of those things that it's hard to kind of pin down whose idea it was first. Um, Senator Mike Barrett, the Senate chair of the Telecommunications, Utilities and Energy Committee, who's kind of the main architect of the climate package the Senate plans to take up next week. He's been saying he's been working on putting legislation together since June. And in the course of those conversations, he he talked with the administration, folks in kind of the, the energy side there and let them know that he was going to be looking at pursuing this this net zero policy. But it's also something, you know, I think we've Everyone's been talking about climate change. I'm sure people are meeting with the same groups of advocates, the same interested parties who who are pursuing really the the same set of solutions. I mean, some might be more aggressive, some might be a little slower in pace, but there there is a, a big consensus, I think, that people want to do something about climate change. Yeah, I think Katie's right. The stars maybe just aligned uh, this week. The answer to your question, Sam, is probably neither of these people came up with this idea. This is kind of just uh, net zero twenty fifth by 2050. This is a big kind of national push uh, to get there. And uh, if you've been listening to the Senate uh, covering some of these hearings as we have, Senator Barrett has been pushing the administration for months. What about uh, Senator Pacheco as well, I should say. What oh, about yeah. what about net zero by 2050? Secretary Theo Harides has repeatedly said, well, you know, we're we're modeling that. We're looking at it. We're putting together a climate plan. We're going to see what it's going to take to get to 80 percent below 1990 levels by 2050. We're going to look at what it's going to take to get to net zero, uh, not committing uh, the administration to that goal, but admitting that they were taking a look at it. And then, you know, you have the start of this uh, second year of the of the two year session. Uh, uh, the Senate's ready to go on their bill. The governor had a chance to make a big splash in his state of the Commonwealth. And, uh, and, and here we are. It appears that this is the trajectory the state is going to be going in. And I, I think it's worth noting, too, that and I, I don't remember offhand if it's one or two other states, but I think it, at least California have, you know, started pursuing the, the goal of net zero by 2050. And so there is a, a 
there's a framework out there in kind of policy land that it's not a <laughs> an idea that was just clutched out of the sky. Sure, yeah. Um, sure. Uh, compared to our existing goals, um, how much how much of a change is this? It depends on who you ask and, and really what the ultimate framework we see looks like. There has been some some talk among some environmental advocates where we're set to reduce emissions to 80% below 1990 levels by 2050. This would be obviously 100%. It'd be 20% beyond that. But, um, you know, there's some, some environmental advocates have been questioning how that math is going to work if there's offsets that can be used to kind of obscure or allow for more emissions and you know there are people out there who say the the right move for the state is instead to go 100 percent renewable power by 2050 our editor mike norton uh did a timeline of tuesday and what it meant for carbon he's uh, his lead was it was a bad day for carbon um bad week for for carbon i, I guess you could say um I mean, we're all made of carbon, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, bad, it's, it's carbon-based carbon life forms. Yes. Or <laughs> uh, bad week for carbon emissions. We, we should point out that carbon could not be reached for comment for that story. <laughs> all right. Um, but uh, the quote that... And as we talk, Katie, about it, it's three bills, right, in this Senate climate package. Um, and when we talk about what uh, what this Senate package would do in terms of... Um, carbon pricing. Um, Senator Mike Barrett had been saying for years that he wanted to uh, somehow put a price on carbon. I remember him saying this at a district event years and years ago. Um, and at that time, it seemed like sort of a, a pipe dream for proponents. Um, uh, is the House likely to play ball with what the Senate comes up with here? That's been kind of the the ongoing question about carbon pricing. The House does have its own carbon pricing bill, uh, notably championed by now former rep Jen Benson. Right. Um, rep Driscoll's kind of taking over. Yeah, for that's her, right. right. He He's stepped into that. Um, his Milton-based district includes the Great Blue Hills. So oh, right. It's uh, got to see some climate change firsthand there with the, the weather monitoring they do in the observatory. But um, all that aside, it has been an area where the House and the Senate have been on different pages. The The language in this bill would leave the the method of how carbon is priced, whether it's a tax, whether it's a, a fee that's, you know, returned to consumers, whether it's a regional tr cap and trade like the governor's pursuing with TCI. Um, it would all leave all of those specifics up to the administration. And Senator Barrett said that making a switch from a, a prescriptive model to one that just gives the deadline for getting it done but doesn't require it being accomplished in a certain way, that was instrumental in getting more senators on board with carbon pricing in the Good past. Point. And, you know, I, I suppose you could imagine more representatives getting on board if it's kind of a broader concept you know it's not a specific we have to do it this way it's we're going to do it by this date sure by s somehow by some means mm -hmm. um all right 
uh, and as we've mentioned, debate on that comes up uh, next Thursday, right? That's right. Yeah. Should be a busy day. Uh, it should be. Uh, continuing with the theme of agenda setting, uh, the governor rolled out his budget proposal the next day, the day after his uh, State of the Commonwealth speech. Um, Matt, what were some of the general themes he was emphasizing on, on that next day, on, on Wednesday? Yeah, well, to hear the administration tell it this is an education and transportation budget, uh, I might leave some of the education details to Katie. But yeah. essentially, this is a you know a, a budget that is the first down payment on the on the big new education funding reform law that uh, the governor signed back in November. And on the transportation front, uh, the governor is proposing uh, to put 135 million in new spending into the MBTA, and he's doing this by proposing to raise TNC fees or the per ride fees that uh, uh, on every ride that a user takes on Uber or Lyft from uh, 20 cents per ride to a dollar per ride. This is uh, $100 million in new fees that the state would generate to pay for uh, new investments at the T. Uh, and Democratic leaders, especially in the House, read this as a bit of a shift from the governor towards their position that the transportation system is in desperate need of new revenue. Yeah, and she didn't really say much uh, or much of anything at the press conference, but he did have Transportation Secretary Pollock standing up there behind him, and uh, that sort of emphasized the transportation theme. And I think it's an outside section of the budget bill that would create a new MBTA board to replace the current one when it, when it That's, expires. Yeah, absolutely. That's, I mean, another piece of this budget, uh, the FMCB uh, that was put in place after the disastrous 2015 winter. Yeah. Uh, and is that's fiscal, fiscal, and, fiscal and Management Control Board? The Fiscal and Management Control Board, yeah. I think. I th or Fiscal Management and Control Board. They'll get a, do away with that in the new one. They're just going to call it the MBTA Board. It's so much easier. Save yeah. you from puzzling where the where the AND goes and what the acronym is. But their authority expires on June 30th, so that we knew this was coming. The governor had to propose a successor governance structure for the MBTA, and uh, this is it. It would be a new seven-member board. Uh, including the Secretary of Transportation, five gubernatorial appointees, and one appointee from uh, essentially the communities that pay into the T. It's not exactly what Boston Mayor Marty Walsh has been clamoring for. He thinks uh, Boston deserves a seat on the, this new MBTA board all to itself. Uh, but the governor is uh, suggesting that the MBTA advisory board, which is made up of people from these communities, pick amongst themselves who can best represent them. And that would give the municipal representation on this new expanded board. But this is probably just the first salvo and what will be an ongoing debate now uh, between the House, Senate, and the administration over how to move forward. Sure. Who has appointing authority now for the T-Board? Do you know? Well, it's the FMCB board well, now, yes, totally yes, yes. under the governor's control. All right, so the governor has all the seats right now. Gotcha. Um, yeah, Katie, let's talk about education funding because the big question going into this year was uh, how's it going to look the first year under the new school funding reform law. Um, and at least in Baker's proposal, how does it look? It looks like $355 million. Um, I will, I guess, kind of spare the, 
excuse me, uh, I'll spare doing a, a complete spreadsheet slash line item recap. But it's a it's a substantial boost in the chapter 70, the main school aid account, 6% or $300 million. There's more money in keeping with the law for charter school and special education reimbursement, a trust fund and some data collection. It's um, it's a pretty substantial boost. Hmm. Now, uh, some, or I mean, I saw a statement from Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz. I don't know if anyone else has, has really jumped into this yet, but at least Senator Chang-Diaz is saying that uh, Baker's proposal does not fully fund um, school aid, at least in the letter and spirit of the new law. Yeah, and you know, we, we have heard from the administration that, in their opinion, it, do, it the letter and spirit was the same phrase used. Um, <laughs> right. So that that's kind of one of those interesting things that you get sometimes in, in government or politics where you have kind of two people pointing to the same words to make opposite arguments. Yeah. Uh, it kind of hinges around the wording in the law, a phrase that is, and I somehow haven't committed the full student opportunity act to memory but it's a, a phrase Still? <laughs> it's I a phrase to that. the effect of uh that it shall be implemented in a in an equitable and consistent manner okay and that's really the the point here that senator Cheng diaz has raised that you know i think i think our, our regular listeners will know there's these four kind of legs of the stool if you will uh, employee health care, special education, English language learners, and low-income students, funding associated with each of those areas. The the point Senator Ching Diaz has been making, um, she's, of course, been a longtime advocate for funding reform, wrote one of the bills that this is modeled after. She says, you and, you know, correctly points out that the increase associated with low-income students is at one f- is at four percent, while the increase associated with the other three pack factors is about one seventh. Right? It's the first year out of seven. Okay, right. So that's more about fourteen percent. Gotcha. Now the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education acknowledges this, but they say there's a reason for it. They say that in order to do it equitably and consistently, because there's other changes associated with low income, they expand what's defined as a low-income student. There's more money coming in, so they're trying to match the money levels. Um, Senator Cheng Diaz's point is basically that it's the pace that should be equal. Okay, so the key word here is equity or equitable. Mm -hmm, That's right. And it's just sort of a subjective word? I mean, all <laughs> language is subjective, right? Yeah. Um, so I think I what think. What do you consider equitable? I'll, yeah. be, I'll be keeping my eye on that as it moves through the the budget debate. Um, see if any other legislators kind of put forward amendments to change that or have anything to say on that. Yeah, yeah. So the budget bill goes over to or it went to House Ways and Means now, and then come what is it late April we'll see it uh, pop up again and we'll get the amendment process going. Yeah we'll go through the uh, the kind of traveling ways and means committee hearing process before that Um, house in April senate in May and conference committee sometime thereafter. Yeah yeah Um, just to wrap up our agenda setting talk I mean we had the governor's policy speech where Matt, you were talking about him setting out some kind of an agenda for Beacon Hill. Um, We've got his budget proposal. And this is just kind of a general question. Um, Pardon me if it sounds kind of inane, but I mean, uh, with Democratic supermajorities on Beacon Hill, um, how much how much 
cachet does Baker's speech have to really set the agenda or how much um, how much cachet does his budget proposal really have compared to what holds up and what actually makes it all the way through? An interesting thing, I think, is that, you know, the, the state of the state is one of the few times you have a, a live broadcast from Beacon Hill. So it kind of, I don't want to say using a, a bully pulpit, it's not that, but bringing that level of attention to a, a policy matter can certainly help by putting it not just in front of the legislator, but, but putting it in front of the people who will ultimately vote for them, kind of bringing public awareness beyond the building can help drive the agenda that way. Hmm. And that's kind of a pulpit that Baker gets that the Speaker or the Senate President doesn't necessarily get that prime time live broadcast to your living room. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think thematically the governor has a lot of opportunity with this speech to uh, put issues front and center if he can't win on the details. I mean, and housing's a perfect example. I mean, he even noted in his speech that he's been beating this drum for uh, three plus years trying to get his housing choices uh, bill through the legislature to no avail. He still can't get hasn't been able to get anything done as he urged them once again to uh, help him address the housing crisis, uh, even if uh, his bill goes too far or people want to do more than him. Uh, he He's urging them to get something done. So, I mean, he may not be able to get the details, but uh, if he... It didn't happen necessarily in this speech because I think we heard him hit on some familiar themes like housing, transportation, uh, health care. But it does he does have the ability here to put something on the agenda uh, that will get legislators talking and thinking about it and at least feeling some pressure to act. Sure. Now, there's stuff he's thinking about that he didn't put out there. Right. Uh, he talked about transportation, as you noted, but he didn't wade into the coming House debate on funding sources, revenue sources for transportation. Uh, he didn't wade into stuff like, I don't, right now upstairs we've got um, that uh, hearing on the, depending on your perspective, safe communities or sanctuary state bill uh, that affects how local and federal uh, authorities uh, communicate over immigration matters. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that he didn't bring up. What, what surprised you that, that didn't pop up that might end up being a flashpoint uh, the rest of this year? Yeah, well, I mean, the governor wants nothing to do with safe communities, so it's not probably a surprise that he didn't bring up safe communities in his speech. Uh, I think what I thought we might hear on Tuesday night was some sort of line in the sand on revenues, particularly with the House uh, theoretically preparing uh, in the next few weeks or months to have a debate over taxes for revenue. Uh, we've heard him say in the past, or at least highlight in the past how he has not raised new revenue or proposed new taxes. He didn't say that on Tuesday night, and he didn't draw a line on revenues. In fact, he wound up the next day proposing those new Uber and Lyft fees, which Democrats saw as a, a yellow light, if maybe not a green light, on, on this revenue debate. And uh, even later in the week, the governor w was asked whether or not he would veto a gas tax. And he was said something to the effect of, well, if that's all it is, yes, I will veto it. But suggesting that there may be things that they could do that he could be okay with. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, that's all food for thought. That's some uh, that's some substantial uh, takeout. <laughs> uh, looping back to the 
thing we opened with there, impeachment. Uh, saw an interesting story in the New York Times this week about um, all the rules being imposed on reporters on Capitol Hill who are covering the Senate trial um, and network TV cameras not being allowed to tape inside the Senate chamber and limits on where reporters can walk near the chamber. Um, and it got me thinking that, gee, we're, we're kind of used to a lot of that stuff on, uh, on Beacon Hill. Um, but uh, that's why Tuesday was so fun. We got to have a joint session, and I got to roam the floor and uh, photograph lawmakers uh, in the House chamber, which is, is a pretty unusual thing for, for us up here in Massachusetts. And I will just note that unlike on Capitol Hill, the senators and, in fact, members of both chamber can bring their Dunkin' Donuts iced coffee onto the floor <laughs> with him. There's no water and milk hard line here. <laughs> and there Swedish is, fish. But, but in the Senate, Swiss don't you have to bring your special Senate em, em, embossed uh, water bottle because they banned <laughs> the cups from going to the floor? Remember a few years ago they had those made yeah. up? I remember that, yeah. Actually, the New York Times also had a story about the candy desk on the Senate floor, which... Pretty much every desk here on Beacon Hill is a candy desk, if, uh, if you've ever watched a formal session. Yeah, the Don Wong throws those Swedish fish around the house like... <laughs> like nobody's business. All right. Uh, have a good weekend, folks. We'll see you next week. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.